Good morning, Woodland Hills. Uh, it is a blessed morning. I tell you, since, since um, Friday, actually, our Good Friday service just had this anointing on it, and it's just felt like it's linked, just hovered all, the whole weekend. It's just been beautiful. It's been a thing of beauty to be here. Um, and for those of you who are feeling, you know, a little righteous because you made the choice to drive 45 minutes to come to church, and that's good, that's good. But uh, I, I hope you don't mind, Carmen. I just want to say, we have a, a young lady here, adorable young lady, who drove all the way from Austin, Texas, uh, just to be part of our service. It, she... Uh, Carmen, that's, that's fantastic. So right now all the parishioners who decided to stay home because they didn't want to drive 30 minutes are feeling really guilty. <laughs> like, oh. uh, so I think she gets the commuter award if there's somebody, you never know where folks are from here. But uh, anyways, God bless you. I'm glad we're all here and are part of the, his presence and are just experiencing this. Okay, Greg did this earlier. I want to do it again. Um, it's, a, it, it's a call response that goes back way to the early church. And the preacher just says, Christ is risen, or he is risen, and everyone responds enthusiastically, he is risen indeed. So let's try this. Christ is risen. He is risen but now this time, say it like you understood what it meant. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do, this is kind of a little experiment. I, I don't know if, I, if this will happen, but if I get the inspiration and the urging to say Christ is risen at any point in my message, I want you to shout out, he is risen indeed. All right? So, just be, you have to be listening to it. Now, if, if everyone else is not listening, and you were listening, and you shout out, he, he's risen indeed all by yourself, well, you get more extra righteousness points for that. All right, so, <laughs> points are awarded. Double on Easter. We're going to look at a passage that's one of my favorite in, in the entire Bible. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. There's so, so much good theology packed into this. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us. He too shared in their humanity. He became a human being, the incarnation. So that, this is the purpose of the whole thing, his death, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And that is the devil. He's been a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. He's behind all death. And and, in doing that, and breaking that power, he will free those who all their lives were held in slavery by what? By their fear of death. That's what I'm going to be talking on this morning. And then just uh, one more passage. Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Praise God. Where, O death, is your victory? Praise God. Where, O death, is your sting? Christ is risen. Amen. 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 Pray with me here. Father, I pray that the profound truth uh, of these passages and of what you've done and of what it means for us, if we will just receive it, I pray that will be conveyed here this morning, not just in information, but that it would find a lodging in the deepest recesses of our heart. I thank you for everyone who's in this auditorium and everyone listening through podcasts, and I pray you open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Infuse this word, Lord, with your resurrection power, the power of your spirit, to do what normal human words can never do, and that is to build your kingdom, to tear down walls, to break all the chains, uh, to to resurrect the dead, bring us out of our deadness, out of the tombs that we sometimes settle for, to walk in your glorious light, in the fullness of the truth that you've made us to be because of your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. We sang this uh, song a little, little while ago. Uh, it, it has this stanza, in fact, we're going to end with this song as well, and this song kind of inspired this message. That... One of the stanzas was that, that his love overcame the grave. 
by his, his love could not be held in the grave. His love could not be conquered. And this is what the resurrection shows, is that the love of God that's revealed on the cross could not be conquered. Everything that Jesus did was motivated by love, because God is love and he was the incarnation of God. And so it was out of love, out of profound love for us, while we were yet sinners, that Jesus made the choice to set aside all of the prerogatives and all the blessings of his heavenly abode and to become a little baby, to take on flesh and blood, to share in our flesh and blood. And it was out of profound love for us that he then went further and went to the cross and bore our sin. And it was out of profound love for us that he entered into total solidarity with our fallen state. Out of profound love for us. He bore our curse. He suffered all the consequences, the death consequences that are inherent in sin. Sin is always self-destructive. And and he, he bore that. That's the judgment of God. It was out of profound love that he did this. And that is why death could not hold him in the grave. And why Satan couldn't hold him in the grave. Because death cannot conquer love. This is what the resurrection proves. Can't conquer the perfect self-sacrificial love that's revealed on the cross. Now, what what I want us to see is is how God used this to break the power of the one who has the power of death. Because it's just brilliant. Um, The Gospels tell us, and Paul indicates in his writings, that Satan was actually the mastermind behind the crucifixion. He used human beings whose hearts were inclined towards him. He manipulated, and like Judas and others. Uh, but he was the mastermind behind the crucifixion. The thing is, is that because Satan is evil, and all who are under him, all those angels and demons that are under him are evil, because of that, they don't get love. You can only understand another person's motivation if you have something of that motivation in your heart, if there's some part that you can empathize with. But if, to the degree that you're evil, you can never understand a love motivation. And so Satan, neither Satan nor the authorities, the powers that were under him, nor the demons, they, they didn't know why Jesus came there because everything he did was out of love. They didn't get that. They're baffled. And that's why you find in the Gospels, sometimes the demons, they, they recognize Jesus, but they don't know why he's here. They say, why are you here? Sometimes they try to guess at that. Have you come to torment us before our time? They, they're baffled by this. They don't get love. And everything Satan does is love. And it's evil that they don't get love. They have chosen that character for themselves. They've acquired that. But see, this is why they orchestrate the crucifixion. Not knowing that in orchestrating the crucifixion, they're orchestrating their own defeat. Right? Because love can never be conquered by the grave or by the devil. They're orchestrating their own defeat. And so, see, what happens is that when Jesus dies on the cross, that expression of perfect self-sacrificial love... It is like just an explosion of light into darkness, the kingdom of darkness. It abolishes the kingdom of darkness. Same way natural light just by nature drives out darkness, so also this manifestation of love, standing in our place, on our behalf, it, it, it was like the atomic bomb that just vanquished the kingdom of darkness. And the irony of the whole thing and the comedy of the whole thing is that the one we have to thank for that is Satan, who orchestrated the whole thing. See, so the cross is like the perfect example. I call it God's Aikido methodology. Uh, his way of defeating evil. In Aikido, you, 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 don't, you never act aggressively towards another. You just take their aggression and turn it back on them. You deflect it. And so God takes the evil that is inherent in Satan and, and all who are under him, and he uses it, he, he causes it to recoil back on them. In other words, God in his infinite wisdom causes evil to self-implode and the kingdom of darkness to self-implode. Satan brings it on himself. And so 
What the resurrection shows is that the joke is on Satan. That's why Paul can say something like this in Colossians 2. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, even the real, real nasty ones. And he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross, And now look at this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. That means a laughing stock. He made a laughing stock of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So what Paul is saying here is this. When when Jesus died on the cross, standing in our place, because he is the one innocent person in human history who did not deserve to die, is standing in our place. It cancels our indebtedness. Satan operates, he's the, he's the ultimate legalist, he's the ultimate Pharisee, he has a legal system, and so every person has to pay for their sin. He's always demanding blood for everyone's sin. And, and, and so that is all that stood against us, that's that whole system of indebtedness. We're bound to him, that's why sin puts us on, in his bondage. Jesus says whoever sins is, is, a, is a slave to sin. We're, 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 we're in bondage to him because of this legality. But when Jesus died on the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, everything that stood against us, Every accusation that could ever be leveled against us, every wrong that we've ever done, every crime we've ever committed, it was nailed to the cross with him. Do you get that? It was nailed to the cross with him. And this is why Paul goes on to say that he disarmed the principalities and the powers. He took away their ammunition. Why? Because the only ammunition they ever had on us was our sin. He's the accuser. That's what he does. That's what Satan does. And, and, and so he's got to have things to accuse us of to stay employed. But he doesn't any longer, because it's been nailed to the cross, it's been abolished, it's been obliterated, it's been vanquished. And the great thing about it is that the one who orchestrated the whole thing was the king of the kingdom of darkness. So Satan unemploys himself, you see that? He shoots himself in the foot, he brings about his own demise. And this is the wisdom of God in defeating evil. He causes it to self-implode, and the result of the whole thing is that we are freed. Nothing stands against us, nothing can be used against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can lay any charge to God's life? God's life? It's God who justifies. And that's all because of the cross. And the resurrection gives us freedom. Christ is risen. Like you mean it, Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's a thing of beauty. So the resurrection shows that, that Satan is, is, is a joke. The resurrection shows that the love of God cannot be conquered by Satan, cannot be conquered by sin, cannot be conquered by the grave. In fact, it is what conquers Satan and conquers sin and conquers the grave. And Satan has been made into a laughing stock. And this is why the author of Hebrews says that we have nothing to fear. If we get this, if we believe this, well then it should free us from our slavery to fear. Uh, in 1 John, I, I, I talked on this last week, it says that there's, perfect, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. No fear in love. And to the degree that you are perfected in your love, there is no fear. And see, the cross is the ultimate expression of love. It's the unsurpassable expression of love. You couldn't get a greater expression of love than this. And so this is the most powerful force in the universe to drive fear out of our life. To be totally freed from fear. If we believe it and trust in this and live it, it has the power to liberate us from everything. If you know the truth and are living in this, then you understand that Satan... Not only do you not need to fear him, but he's a joke. And the power of Satan, which is the power of death, is a joke. Because we know that if he is risen and we are in him, then we are risen indeed. Praise God. And so the enemy's got nothing on us. Death has got nothing on us. No one's got anything on us. Now, I want us to see here this morning 
the difference that that makes in our life if we will really believe it and live by it. It changes everything. Notice that in Hebrews, the power of death is almost synonymous with the power of the devil. Jesus came to break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And, um, and, and, and so when you destroy the one, you destroy the other. And that's what sets us free because the author says, our slavery was our fear of death. That's what kept us enslaved. That means that the fear of death must be a very, very powerful force. It's, it's Satan's main tool in keeping us in bondage. And I want us to understand why this is the case. There's been a number of folks who have, have uh, uh, argued this, that our fear of death is actually one of the most, if not the most, powerful and destructive forces in our life. A number of theologians and psychologists have argued this. Though most people are unaware of it because we're so used to this, we don't identify it, but actually the fear of death is one of the most destructive, if not the most destructive forces in our life. I met one of these folks who argued this uh, last year. I was speaking at a conference. And I uh, met this man named Richard Beck. And we were cut out of the same cookie cutter. We were just, he's a renegade, wild guy. And we just, we just had a blast at this conference. And so I, I gave some talks and he gave some talks. And the talks he gave were based on a book he wrote several years ago called The Slavery of Death. It's a very, very insightful book. And what he wants to show here is just how powerful the fear of death is and how it really is behind, ultimately, all sin. Uh, Building on the work of others, he argues that it is the single most driving force in our life. And it always drives in a wrong direction. We live under the shadow of death, which means that we are, on some level, aware of our mortality. And we try to forget that, at least most people try to forget that. Some of us are sort of obsessed with it all of our life. But most people try to forget that and, and, and drown it out and medicate that. You know, it's just not the most pleasant thought in the world. But it's always there. We're aware of our mortality. The clock is ticking. We've got a finite amount of time. And what that does is it creates an anxiety in us, Richard Beck says. And he, he names this anxiety the scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset. Well, let me tell you what that means. It's usually applied to folks who have gone through long periods of time where things have been scarce, where they, they were on the verge of starvation. And for folks who go through long periods of time where you have to scavenge for food uh, and there's never enough, a good percentage who come out of that will have this scarcity mindset. They are always af- afraid that the food they have now will become scarce. And even though they have no reason to be, it's not a rational thing, but it's so deeply seared into them. It's a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. They went through the trauma of almost starving to death, and so they come out, and now their brain, it's just focused on, on never being in that situation again. And so these folks with the scarcity mindset tend to hoard food, even though they don't need to, and then they ration food even though they don't need to. Which means, ultimately, that they can't ever just enjoy eating food, because you can never enjoy something that's all wrapped up in fear. You see, it, it, it just sucks the joy right out of it, the scarcity mindset. And for some of these folks, the scarcity mindset gets attached to other things as well. And so they cling to people, and they cling to money, and they cling to things because they might go away tomorrow. And they just live in that world, which means that they really can't enjoy anything. They're always hoarding and always rationing. God bless your soul, but my stepmother was, was definitely in that category of these extreme folks who have this scarcity mindset. She went through the Great Depression and was very, very, very poor. 
And she came out of that with, I think, a, a, a stress disorder. Oh, God bless her. I love her. She died a wonderful follower of Jesus, and I'll see her in heaven. But when she was raising me, she was a little bit twisted, as I've shared before around here. And the scarcity mindset was one of the ways in which she was a little bit twisted. When my dad wasn't around, which was most of the time, and that was important because, see, my dad also went through the Great Depression and had the opposite sort of disorder. He, his, his my idea was, let's spend it all now, because uh, you know, we might not have it tomorrow. And my stepmother's like, no, let's save it all now because we might not have it tomorrow. And boy, did they have some interesting discussions. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was interesting. But the thing was that when he was away, she would ration everything as though we were in the Great Depression. And I now see she couldn't help herself. But man, as a kid, it made you very mad. So when we wanted to go to the bathroom, we had to go to her and get our ration of toilet paper. I'm not kidding. I have never heard anyone else who did this. But she would, uh, for the girls, if you're going number one, you got one, one, one piece, one, one little slice. Uh, and if you're going number two, I don't know if people still talk that way, but that's how I was raised. Number one and number two. You still know, you know what those mean? They're code for, okay. So, and so, so if you're going number two, you got two slices. What? Say what? I know it. I, 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 I'll tell you this, you learn how to be very efficient with toilet paper when you grow up in circumstances like that. There must be 50 ways to fold a toilet paper. <laughs> Some of you are getting a visual going, ooh, yes. And you, you learn how to pray not to ever have diarrhea because that's a disaster. That's just a disaster. It's, uh, it's, but see, she couldn't help herself. It's a scarcity mindset. Hoard and save, ration everything. It's crazy how even the most dysfunctional, irrational things, when you get them as young children, they stick with you a very long time. Has anyone else ever noticed that? Uh, so when I first married my, my dear wife, I was shocked at how much toilet paper she used. Just shocked. <laughs> Honey, what is that? You know, <laughs> wrapping it up like that. No, you're supposed to fold it. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Mom's going to be really mad at you. You're in trouble. Ah, I see. You inherit post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the thing. But I, I'm much better than I used to be. Uh, and Sully always reminds me that it's this issue. She's the normal one, not me. Though that's the only issue in our marriage where that's true. Okay, just so you can say. And um, yeah, that uh, I, I now finally got to the point where I no longer compulsively count the slices I use. I'm free. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm free. I use as much toilet paper as I want. There you go. Okay, way too much information. Way too much. I'm here to talk about death, not poop, and so don't get me off track. This is an Easter message. Stay focused. So here's the thing. What Beck and others show is that that scarcity mindset, while those are extreme, intense examples of it, unless you've been freed from this, and I'll get to that later, but for most people, there's something like that scarcity mindset that they live with because they're always aware that everything's finite. Their time is finite. The clock is ticking. So they live with that. And so most people, even those who believe in a life after death, we see they may believe in that, but what's most real to them, or they know that that's just a hope, it might turn out not to be the case. So they live as though this is it. And, and, and we tend to view everything the way my mom viewed toilet paper and the way once starving people view, view food. Got to get, get as much of it as possible and hang on to it. And in the same way that People who have that scarcity mindset can't really enjoy food because you can't enjoy something where there's fear wrapped up around it. So also, the scarcity mindset, based on our awareness of our mortality, tends to suck the joy right out of life. And the vast, vast, vast majority of people are never aware of why that is the case. They're not even aware that they have this anxiety driving them. They're not aware that they are in bondage 
to the fear of death. And that that is the enemy's hold on us. Now this, this uh, uh, scarcity mindset gets manifested in a lot of different ways. The, the most common way, I suppose, is that we tend to hoard. The idea is that the clock is ticking. There's only so much time. So, so I want to have my best life now. And so we're driven by our awareness of our mortality, though we're not aware of that. We're driven to grab as much as we can to have our best life now. And it's every man for himself. And so we want to have as much experience as we can, as many peak experiences as we can, and acquire as much wealth as we can, and, and, and get as much pleasure as we can, and comfort as we can, and security as we can. We want our best life now. And see, everyone else is doing the same thing, so that means we're in a competition because there's only so many resources to go around. The clock is ticking, and there's only so many resources to go around, and it's every man for himself. And so we scramble against others, uh, to acquire what we can acquire and to keep what we can keep. What it, what it means is that the scarcity mindset makes us self-centered. It is at the root of all self-centeredness. It dulls our capacity, because we're just driven by this without being aware of it, it dulls our capacity to care about others, to think about others, to have compassion on others, and to empathize with others who are disadvantaged. And it, so it short-circuits the call to live with generosity. The scarcity mindset keeps us from living and the generosity that God calls us to live in, because you can't be generous with something that you're clinging to. It's just the absolute opposite. So this attempt to have our best life now, driven by this scarcity mindset, this, 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 this desire actually sorts circuits your ability to have your best life now. Because as anyone who has ever been set free from clinging will tell you, there is no joy like the joy of giving, the joy of being generous. That is your best life now, but it's cut off from you if you're driven by your awareness of mortality and the scarcity mindset that comes with it. For some folks, the scarcity mindset is manifested as a, a sort of a worry that, that, that uh, your best life has passed you by, that you're missing out on life. This is one that starts to plague people, especially around middle age, though you can have it at any age. But it's a worry that you're not going to get your best life. You missed your chance. And these poor folks begin to live in a world of if-onlys or I could have beens you know, if, if only I wouldn't have blown that audition, I'd be a rock star right now. Uh, if only I had taken that job, I would be somebody. If only I made that shot at, at the buzzer in a high school championship game, I would have been a legend. If only, if only, if only. My life would have been significant. My life would have been meaningful. I could have amounted to something. But now I'm going to just be living this mediocre life. And it's a very painful state to be. I, I, I missed the one chance. Now, in our culture, we, we, we tend to romanticize um, we, we make an idol out of romantic love. And we have this common sort of mythic romantic thing out there that, that, that um, your life's not complete unless you find that one true love. You complete me, that thing. Um, yes, it, it, it's all over the place. And, and so this then, a lot of people begin to worry, am I going to ever find my one true love or did I miss out on my one true love? And it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety in folks, especially single folks. As they get a little bit older, they go into their 30s, maybe into their 40s, and, and the clock is ticking, and they're wondering, am I going to go through life without having that one true love, without ever being complete, if they believe this mythology? And then what intensifies it is as, as they're getting older, I mean, the way, the way it works in our culture anyways is it's sort of like a market system, you know, everyone's kind of shopping. And as you get older, well, maybe your marketability starts to go down because, you know, you get a few little wrinkles here, a gray hair there, a little bit of weight over here, a bulge there. You know how the thing goes. Gravity begins to win, and all of a sudden you're not as marketable, and that intensifies, that intensifies your angst, your, your anxiety over this thing. 
And I've known people who then get married just because they, they want to try to have their best life now and, and, and find the one true love. But they didn't marry out of love. They married kind of out of desperation. And that's not really a good motivation to get into a relationship. It leads other people, this, this, this mythology uh, leads other people to do crazy things. But it's all driven by this, this I've got to have my best life now. I've got to get it. I only have a certain amount of time. And so this intensity just drives us to do crazy things. I years ago heard about a couple, a Christian couple, that in high school they fell in love. It was their first love, and, and you know, the hormones raged, and the flame flew, and the wind wisps and everything was beautiful and wonderful oh there were birds in the tree but i never heard them singing and until there was you and it's that sleepless in seattle thing you know it's all oh, the one in my life so they're oh, they're like uh, super intense so it was hot and heavy for a while all right but then for some reason they broke up and life goes on and they end up marrying other people now they both held to this uh, to make the mythology of romance in our culture even worse, there's a Christian version of it that says that there is in the world one person who is your true soulmate, and God's picked them out from before you were ever born. I, when I taught at Bethel, you wouldn't believe how many students believe this. There's that one person out there, one. And God's perfect plan for your life involves you connecting to them. Uh, and this couple, both of them believe that. Now, here's the thing. As often happens with folks who believe this Christian sleepless in Seattle mythology... Um, about a year, two years into the wife's marriage to this other guy, she begins to wonder, is this God's perfect true love for me? Is this God's best plan for me? Because uh, he hasn't seen that perfect. Surprise! You know, this is shocking. I, and see, it wasn't like this was a bad marriage or that, you know, there's any infidelity or abuse going on. It just was, you know, not, it wasn't the hot and heavy hormone-induced flame of everything back in high school. And so she starts thinking, maybe I missed God's perfect plan for my life. I had one shot at true love, and I blew it. The one that God had picked out for me is gone. But then she thinks, maybe it's not too late. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe I can get back on track. Maybe I can get back on God's perfect plan. Maybe I can divorce this loser I'm with and get up with the guy I should have been with. If, if, if you think carrying out God's perfect plan involves breaking covenants... Uh, you're misconceiving God's perfect plan. But this is her idea. So she gets on Facebook to find her old flame, which is never, ever, ever a good idea. All right? Never. <laughs> Cut it off. So she gets on Facebook. She finds her old flame. And guess what? He's been three years into his marriage, and he's kind of feeling the same way. Saying the same way. And so you can guess the rest. Even though he's got a child with this lady, they both leave their spouses and run off together, eventually get married, and do not live happily ever after. As happens in over 80%, they've studied this, because this is a wild phenomenon now. A lot of people are doing this, remembering the old flame of their high school and going back and trying to rekindle that flame. Over 80% of the time, it turns out disastrous. Bad idea, but this is what they do. And did you see how it's all driven by this, this sense of, I got one shot, a true love, and I, I, I got to have it now. I want my best life now. This is all there is. It's a scarcity mindset that drives people to do crazy things. And I won't charge you anything extra for this piece of advice, even though it doesn't have anything to do with, with, with Easter, but I just feel like I want to say it. And it's this. Um, this idea that there's one true love out there, you've got to find that one true love out there, God's picked them off for you way ahead of time, it is unbiblical, it is irrational, and it is very dangerous because it sets you up for an expectation that no one's ever going to meet. No one's ever going to meet that. Two weeks, two months into the marriage, you're going to find out there ain't no perfect true love out there. 
And, and, and so just kind of abolish that idea. And the other thing is this. We don't find true love. You feel like, I've got to find my true love. No, you don't find your true love. You create true love with another person. That's something you create. You don't discover it. That's magic. You, know, you create it, and the way you create it, here's, here's the secret formula. Here's how you create it. Hard work. You create it by making a choice every day to work through the issues. You, make it, uh, you create it by creating a, making a choice that you're going to forgive quickly and, and you're going to receive uh, uh, forgiveness quickly and you're not going to hold on to resentment. And, and you, you create perfect love or true love by committing not to ever take each other for granted and to speak the truth to one another. And you create perfect true love by having Christ at the center of your marriage. That's how you create true love. Amen? And you can do it with somebody you're compatible with or somebody that you're very, very incompatible with. And most marriages tend to be in the second category because it's really true that opposites attract. And this is God's perfect design for creating character in us. So there you go. That was free. Take it. No extra charge. One other example of of, uh, uh, illustration of the scarcity mindset. And it's this. The scarcity mindset causes us to scrabble and compete with others to grab because we want our best life now. But it also causes us to kind of in a paranoid way try to protect what we've already grabbed. We're afraid that we're going to lose what we've acquired. And this, what gives us intensity is that we know that, that life is very tenuous and things can easily be taken from us. So there, on some level, people may be worried that what if, they, what, if, what if the economy tanks and I lose my best life now and I lose my wonderful house and I lose my car and, and, and all of that? You know, what if? And, and what if that young new employee replaces me because they're more energetic than me and they have, they're more techno-savvy than me? Or, or what, if, what, if, what if I, this isn't a personal example, by the way, but what if I uh, no longer am attractive to people? Would they no longer find me sexy? Uh, you know, because as I'm getting older, gravity is winning. Well, what then? Because that's such an important part of my best life now. Or what if I stop being admired for the way I can throw a football or the way I can sing or the, the way that I can preach or the way that I can uh, uh, bedazzle people or whatever it is. And what really makes this intense is that we know, here's the thing, on some level we know that we are going to lose it. You always lose it. Here's the promise. You're going to lose it. <laughs> Unless the Lord come back and, comes back and sets up his kingdom. But, but uh, otherwise, uh, this train only goes in one direction. And uh, you lose it. And we're aware of that, and so it creates anxiety. And this sucks the joy right out of life. It just sucks the joy right out of life. For some people, it means that they can never take risks. Because they're, you know, they, they have this, and maybe it isn't their best life, but it's, you know, it's something. And so they want to hang on to it. And, and they can never take risks. So they settle for a mediocre okayness, maybe, when God may be calling them to a very adventurous greatness. Following God in any significant way usually requires some risk. Step out of the boat. Abraham, go out and find his land someplace. Leave your security of Ur and go out and find the promise. Well, it involves a risk, but if you're living with this scarcity mindset, that's a risk you just can't take. And so it's very hard to be submitted to God fully if you're living in the scarcity mindset. And the other thing I'll just say is this. Beck argues in his book very effectively that this is what is at the root of all violence, violence in our thoughts and violence in our actions, the scarcity mindset. Because there's only so much time and there's only so many resources, and so we're all scrabbling to grab as much as we can and to hang on to what we've got and to protect what we've got. And so I've got to compete with others to grab what I want, and I've got to protect what I've grabbed from others. So if anyone starts to get in my way of grabbing what I want to grab or threatening what I need to protect, guess what? There's hostility. It's hostility, and it's anger, and maybe then there's hatred, and sometimes there's violence, and all violence comes out of this. It's a scarcity mindset. Got to grab, and I got to hold on to, and everyone that is threatening that, 
Well, it's my enemy that I hate. And this is why, folks, a fraction of a fraction of professing Christians take Jesus' teaching about loving enemies seriously. That indiscriminate love, love enemies and friends alike, uh, swear off all violence. Very few take that seriously. Why? Because they're aware of their mortality. And they're driven with a scarcity mindset. And they're grabbing and they're clutching and they're clinging. Only a person who's gotten free from the need to scrabble and to cling and to protect, only that person can love indiscriminately the way Jesus calls us to love. Think about that. Getting free is very important. And what Beck shows is that, that this fear is at the foundation of all sin. Not just violence. It is the power of the devil. It is, it is the power of sin, the scarcity of mindset, this anxiety. It, it makes us hungry for stuff that we just need to grab. It's behind all of vi- of violence, all hatred, all of our idolatry, um, uh, all of our apathy towards others. Behind it all is this self-centeredness that comes out of the scarcity mindset that is rooted in our anxiety of sin. Needing to have our best life now, and it's every man for himself. Folks, this is what makes the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus so beautiful, so important, and so powerful for, for us. It's just so powerful. Because see, what the resurrection means, if we choose to believe this, really believe this and live in this, what it means is that the one who holds the power of death has been defeated. And the power of death has been destroyed. There is no longer any sting in death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Christ is risen. Like you mean that Christ is risen. Amen. So if we choose really to believe this, put our confidence in this, that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, what it means is that we can be set free from from our slavery to the fear of death. Totally set free from that, which then frees us to be able to love and live the bold, fearless way, full of love that, 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 that Christ calls us to. What it means, the resurrection means that the good news is that the love that was revealed on Calvary, that perfect love, that love that drives out all fear, it is driven, if we will receive it, it's driven the devil out of our life, the fear of, 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 of death out of our life, the power of the devil out of our life, uh, the need to scramble is driven out of our life, the need to protect is driven out of our life. The need to try to have our best life now is driven out of our life. Which means that now we're free to have our best life now. Because that is your best life now. When you no longer need to try to have your best life now. You get it. When you die, you live. When you let go of that stuff, you acquire it. It's given to you. What the resurrection reveals is that this, the, the love of God is a love that Satan could not conquer and sin could not conquer and the grave could not conquer. Rather, it is what conquered Satan. It is what conquered sin. It is what conquered the grave. What the resurrection reveals is that the perfect self-sacrificial love of God revealed on Calvary is the most powerful force in the universe. It looks like weakness to the world, but it's the most powerful. Self-sacrificial love, laying down your life for others, is the most powerful force in the universe. What the, what the resurrection reveals is that that love is stronger than the devil. It's stronger than sin. It's stronger than accusation. It's stronger than the grave. It's stronger than guns. And it's stronger than tanks. And it's stronger than bullets. And it's stronger than bombs. And stronger than jets. And stronger than, than the all militaries put together. Praise God. Stronger than laws. And stronger than threats. It's stronger than vengeance. And stronger than hatred. Stronger than ISIS. Stronger than all the terrorists put together. This is the, the strongest force in the universe. It's utterly unconquerable. It's undefeatable. It, it, it's unassailable. It's it's indestructible, praise God. This is a love that's insurmountable. It's invincible. It's it's inextinguishable. It's unshakable. It's unassailable. It is unbreakable, praise God. It is unparalleled. It's unequaled. It's unrivaled. It it can't be measured against anything. It's utterly unsurpassable. And that is why, folks, that we trust in that power and live according to that power. It has the power to drive out all fear. Perfect love drives out all fear. There is no fear in love. 
And if we trust in that, then we are set free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The freed from the need to scrabble, to cling, to clutch, to protect. Therefore, the free to live the way God wants us to live. When you no longer need to live your best life now, you can let that go. Now you're living your best life now. That is resurrected life, folks. This is living in the power of the resurrection where you are free. No clutching, no clinging, no anything. That is free. Praise God. Praise God. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. That is freedom. So look, if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered disciple of Jesus, I want to encourage you. I, I, deep down, you, know, you want your best life now, and I hope you can see here how to get it. Die to trying to have your best life now. No, just surrender your life to Jesus, the one who loves you more profoundly than you could ever, ever imagine. And trust in what he did for you on the cross and resurrection. Turn the reins of your life over to him. Turn from your self-centered living and cling to him. And then invite that love to begin to transform you from the, from the inside out. And if you're here this morning and are interested in doing that after the service, I encourage you to come up here and just talk to one of the folks that are up front and they'll help you get started on, on, on your walk. For the rest of us, I encourage us just to be increasing our confidence that he is risen indeed. His death has freed us. The resurrection has de- declared that we are freed from the power of the one who enslaved us all of our life. We need, can, we need not have any kind of fear of death in our life, which frees us to live fully. When you no longer need to live, now you can live fully. I want to close by celebrating this one more time. We just stand. And this is the song that inspired this message. The love that could not be held in the grave. Put all your heart, all your mind, your imagination into who you're singing to and what we're singing about. And let the power of God, the resurrection power come down and break every chain. Let's do it.